Hello, how are you? Hello, thanks for having me. I am, I'm so excited about this. Um, may I ask you please to tell us your name and share anything you feel comfortable sharing about yourself? Sure, I'm Deborah Jacobs and I'm the University Librarian and Vice Provost for Library Affairs at Duke University. And uh, my family, I think I've been thinking a lot about my family lately because we're all uh, thinking about our roots and our upbringings and the ways we were raised and that sort of thing. Um, we're doing a lot in the libraries around um, racial justice and uh, a lot of deep self-reflection and that's led me to think a lot about my own family. Um, my grandparents were all uh, immigrants from Lithuania. They landed in Chicago where they lived in quite a uh, large Lithuanian community. You probably know Chicago's got lots of different immigrant groups. And my grandfather on my mother's side was the undertaker for the community and lived above the business. And so when we visited, we were, you know, my brother and I had, you know, scary, had to run through the funeral home. And, but, um, my father uh, was uh, uh, an oral surgeon and he joined the Navy. And so um, I was actually not born in Chicago. I was born in Southern California and my family moved around quite a bit. Um, my father came back from World War II, told my mother he was not planning to go into private practice. He was going to stay in the Navy. And so that led to a lot of uh, travel, including living in Italy when I was in first and second grade. Uh, my mother was a little wary because she knew exactly where she wanted to live in Chicago, near her family, and very tight, tight, close family. But I think in the end, she was glad to have the chance to travel around the country and the world. Um, I tell you all that as background because uh, we would come back periodically to see my grandparents and particularly on my mother's side, they were more assimilated, but they were also, particularly my grandmother, quite racist. Um, as, you know, immigrants sometimes are, where they, you know, feel that they have clawed their way to some position of, you know, modest living. And they, um, in my grandmother's case in particular, she saw that you know, she made a lot of very negative comments about uh, blacks in Chicago and the kinds of things that when you're a kid, um, you know, you can either absorb and then become that thing that start thinking that way yourself, or you can say, hmm, this isn't quite right. And so fortunately, I think probably because my brother and I had the opportunity to travel to different places and see different people. I mean, not that we had black friends when we were growing up because that, that didn't come for quite a while. But I think our eyes were open to uh, wider um, perspectives on, on the world. And, you know, we're not perfect by any means, but when I, when I see on Facebook the kinds of things some of my cousins who just stayed put and were very much in that bubble of racism, um, within Chicago, which has its own particular character in that way, uh, I'm shocked that, you know, people I'm related to can, can say these things and think these things. And so, 
you know, it's hard to, to change that kind of thinking. But so then from, um, you know, growing up in a kind of, um, you know, moving around quite a bit. My dad died when I was 12. And so we ended up settling in a suburb of Chicago. So I saw my relatives and my grandparents more. And I became very interested, mostly through a high school teacher um, in Latin America and Latin American studies. And uh, that opened up a whole new area of diversity for me. And, you know, there are 20 countries in Latin America. People think of Latin America as like a single place, sort of like Africa, you know. It's, it's just one place and everything's the same. But uh, a high school trip to Mexico um, was very um, just wonderful and eye-opening. And then... I ended up going to college at the University of Wisconsin in Madison and um, had, you know, many, many Latin American friends from all over and then ended up getting a PhD in Latin American history at Stanford and um, spending quite a bit of time in Colombia and in mostly in Argentina. So I've, I've traveled to most of the countries of South America um, and also to Mexico, not as much to Central America, but um, you know, I'm very concerned right now with what's happening to immigrants in this country. Uh, it breaks my heart. It's a crime. And so, you know, I'm, I'm like most people right now, or I hope most people, kind of going through a kind of deep period of personal reflection on how I can be uh, better and how I can help solve some of these problems or contribute to solutions, not solve them, of course. Absolutely. So that's a little bit on me. Um, I'm going to come back to your, your upbringing in a minute, but can you tell us what a university librarian is and what that person does and what are the responsibilities and how does that impact the academic environment? Sure. Um, I'm responsible for uh, the budget and the personnel and the, uh, just the overall management of the university libraries, which at Duke... Um, and at some other places does not include all the professional school libraries in a direct, um, a direct sort of, um, you know, reporting uh, arrangement. Yeah. They report up through their deans. So at Duke, the medical, uh, business, and um, law. Law, law and divinity uh, do not report into the Duke University Library system, but we work very closely with them on um, collection development and licensing of electronic resources. And through this pandemic, we've had, we've become even closer because of, you know, trying to figure out reopening and how to keep the staff safe and how to get things to students and faculty, et cetera. So it's, it's basically an over, overarching responsibility for the making sure that the services and collections and technologies are available for uh, faculty, uh, students, and other visiting researchers. Um, at Duke, I think we've been very fortunate because uh, faculty have regarded the libraries as very strong partners. So in areas like um, data management policies or 
um, some of the creative humanities programs through the Franklin Humanities Institute. We often have uh, faculty reaching out to us, sorry, notice here, um, to see if we can partner with, with them on grant proposals or on, you know, kind of creative initiatives. So, so that's, um, that's in a nutshell, that's what we do, what I do. Okay, and let me ask this question, and I don't remember this exactly, but uh, what used to be CIT, uh, does that fall under your organization? Uh, CIT became Duke Learning Innovation, DLI. Oh, DLI. And um, it, it did, it, initially when it was established, it was uh, established within the libraries because it was seen as a campus-wide academic resource. Even though it was the Center for Instructional Technology, so it had technology in the title, it was seen as closely connected to uh, teaching and learning rather than being driven by the technology, if that makes sense. Perfect sense. So um, it has evolved into Duke Learning Innovation uh, with um, now is a joint report to um, the executive vice provost uh, for finance and administration, Jennifer Francis, and uh, to me. So it's a joint joint report. Yeah. Um, yeah. The reason why I asked you about that organization is I remember when uh, Len O'Brien left, Duke, mm -hmm. there was a lot of discussion about rethinking about that mm -hmm. group and specifically for students, you know, so a lot of it was geared more to faculty and, you know, faculty teaching and, and, and such. But there was a, a, a small portion of uh, people that thought that there should have been more student involved in the, I don't even know if the word design is the correct way, but the way things were offered to them, if that makes sense to you. And I was just wondering, had that changed any or is that now, you know, incorporated in that new organization? Well, you know, a lot has changed, and I think the, the biggest thing is the, uh, the pandemic has intervened, and so DLI has really cranked into high gear initially to work with uh, DKU, Duke Kunshan University, when they had to move everything online in the spring, mm -hmm. and then, of course, with, uh, with Duke, Duke, Duke Durham mm -hmm. and, and having to, you know, convert everything to, to online. And, and uh, you know, I can't say that there's been a real move toward um, focusing on students because it's mostly been working, DLI's mostly been working with um, helping faculty design uh, their teaching around these new challenges and figure out the best way to deliver the content of their courses to students. So in that way, it is connected to students. And, you know, I, th I think they do have, you know, consultation with students, but it's not a, uh, a kind of explicit focus on students at this point. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I know you've talked to Sean Miller as well, so he's probably in a better position to answer that question with detail. Absolutely. I appreciate that. I just was curious as to whether that mm -hmm. I do remember that that was one of the issues that was raised mm -hmm. after she left. Right, right. Um, so going back to your upbringing, um, so I think we all know someone who has said or done things that we didn't think was equitable to other people, right? So right. You know, thinking about, uh, you know, um, 
diversity in America. Uh, we start off with um, slavery and indigenous people, right? So we, 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 from what the history books tell us, indigenous people were opening and welcoming and willing to share what they had mm -hmm. that turned out negatively for them. And then, you know, when uh, the colonists and pilgrims and all these other people came here and they were trying to develop America into a nation, um, they went to Africa and, and bought and stole black people and brought them here. Mm -hmm. And um, when I think about immigration, I also think about Ellis Island and, you know, people coming over on boats and all that stuff over to America for a better life. Whereas black people and in, in the indigenous people portion, there was no better life for them. And even today, there is no great better uh, life for black and brown people. And that's not to say that all of us are in abject poverty or not educated, all that. That's not the point at all. But that, you know, we can take the pandemic, as you mentioned before. So black and brown people are higher, two times higher than any other group to be right. uh, sidelined with COVID, right? So there's that, you know, when um, companies went in, you know, when we went to remote or, or less intimate in, uh, contact with each other, black and brown people were most likely affected by losing their jobs or losing their security. And they already were far behind in the wealth scale as it is. So yes. it's really interesting to see where we are. But I think even that's, uh, you know, an interesting place because, you know, hearing people like you talk about this, and I mean, I've, I've heard this conversation now, you know, I'm over a hundred times, and it's almost always the same, you know, people are now becoming aware. And my question I ask, and I ask everybody the same question when this issue is raised, did you know before Mr. Floyd was killed how bad things were for black and brown people? Were you aware, cognitively aware, cognitively aware of how that those communities were impacted? Uh, yeah, I would say that I was. Um, I have a neighbor who has a project of film, he's a filmmaker and he has a project on redlining. And I had talked quite a bit with him. And of course I saw it, you know, firsthand in, in Chicago and growing up and, you know, just the, uh, you know, the, 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 the playing field just, you know, not being even. Um, you know, I would say that it, um, sorry, I keep getting reminders on my screen of things, um, of, um, you know, uh, George Floyd's death was more a, you know, a final call to like, well, gosh, this is just really, you know, enough. And, you know, it, it's been very, um, you know, I, I think going back to my childhood, I was thinking as you were talking that, you know, you knew it was wrong, but you didn't know what you could do. You know, certainly growing up and then, you know, becoming more of a kind of activist in college, but more for, you know, um, you know, it was the Vietnam War and, you know, the anti-war movement and that sort of thing. I mean, I was involved in, in those kinds of things. But so seeing this new activism that seems much broader with the, the killing of George Floyd, um, I think has energized a lot of people. And, you know, certainly in the libraries we have been, you know, I won't say solely focused on this, but it's been a huge part of our conversations among our staff and, um, 
we have a racial justice uh, strategy task force to kind of you know plot out our roadmap for what we're we're hoping to focus on, and this may become our entire strategic plan going forward because it's that important. And there's so much, you know, within libraries, there's you know there there's everything from you know the what you might consider more subtle things like description like how things are cataloged you know how people like illegal aliens you know the the value judgments that have gone into describing um people and collections in our catalogs or the fact that certain people's books or certain people's papers are not collected or don't receive the same kind of visibility. So libraries have a very important role to play in uh, helping people. You know, I mean, we collect, and and, and I've gotten some flack from people over the years, research libraries have to collect all points of view because these are the raw materials of scholarship and people have to be exposed to even the ugliest things so that they can understand the impact of those ugly things. So for example, you know, hate literature, or we have collection of Nazi materials, you know, those are, you know, you don't want to have to look at those things, but if you're a scholar trying to figure out how these movements came about. So I'm, I'm going on and on, but I'm, I'm just trying to stress the role of libraries. I'm, I'm a little bit drifting from your original question, but my point is that it's not just, me who was energized by the George Floyd killing. It's, you know, the entire library profession, certainly, and, and a much, much wider swath of society. Yeah. I think that, you know, I've heard from lots of uh, white colleagues and associates that they are aware, you know, and I, when I asked the question, you know, what, what was the salient point that brought this to your attention? You know, because when I went to school, I was raised in the rural South. And, uh, you know, I was told that Christopher Columbus discovered America. Oh, yeah. Oh, you know, I have all of these things that was a part of my academic learning. Um, and slavery and, and the plight of Black people were not included in my learning um, as a, a high school student or, or such. And it is not, I didn't get my first college degree until I was 42 or something like that. And so it wasn't really until I had entered the, the realm of higher education that I started to hear a lot of the myths that I had been told were just that, myths, right. not facts. I, I want to raise something with you because I know we don't have much time. I want to raise something with you uh, that you mentioned about how uh, we, we in America are treating illegal immigrants or people who are trying to come into America for a better life. And uh, it, it raises a point for me of, you know, separating children from their parents, you know, deporting their parents or sending their parents back somewhere and leaving the children in these cages. And it kind of has some of the, the same points of slavery, right? So, you know, Black mm -hmm. mothers lost their children, you know, they were sent, right. you know, and, and it seems like America keeps repeating this, this thought about privilege and supremacy, right? So I am white, therefore I am supreme, I am yeah. all knowing, I'm all these things. What is it that that the literature says about why these things occur? And, and, and if you know, what are the things that will change that? Why is it that white people see themselves as so much more superior than other groups and to the point that they could, you know, I, I imagine these kids are gonna be traumatized and, 
in amazing ways as they grow up, you know, and, and you know, we want to talk about the criminalization of things, but some of these things that do happen in childhood lead people to, you know, go astray from the yeah. uh, great narrow. Yeah, I don't know that I can really get into the, the reasons for that kind of white supremacy and white supremacist thought, but um, I've been fortunate to be a member of the steering committee of Duke's um, Center for Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation, the TRHT, that Charmaine Royal is uh, heading up. And the work of the TRHT is based on um, Gail Christopher's uh, belief that we need to do away with the hierarchy of human value. And I think that's what you're getting at, that there is this assumption that white people are superior. And that's just not true. Um, you know, no one should have their children taken from them and put in cages. No one should be treated with the kind of violence that, that uh, black people are seeing now and the, that uh, immigrants and refugees who are simply trying to escape violence and, and all kinds of things. I mean, it all comes down to basic human goodness. And, you know, I sometimes think on my darker days that there are more bad people than good people in the world because of the, the ugliness that we see, you know, uh, unfolding around us. But, you know, if there's anything I've, um, you know, I was saying earlier that I wasn't sure what, what I could do, you know, as I was growing up. And if there's anything that has really stuck with me in recent months, it's that we all have, uh, we can't wait for someone else to do it for us. We all have an individual responsibility to, to try to make changes, to be anti-racist in the most simple things to the most complicated things. So as an individual, what can I do? You know, call, call out behaviors, model good behavior, promote good behavior, um, contribute to good causes, show solidarity, be an ally, be, you know, well-informed, and, you know, insist on that with my, with my family and friends. And so I think, I think, you know, this idea may not seem like a big light bulb going off, like, oh, you know, you're enlightened all of a sudden, but you know, the, to, that the individual acts can really accumulate into something much bigger and more significant. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, when you were talking early, earlier about uh, supremacy, so, you know, one of the most subtle ways of supremacy is to look at the structure of companies and organizations, right? So majority of them are white men, you know, you get a couple of other flavors in there along the way. Women come along some way. And I was mm -hmm. reading something the other day about the, um, the women's suffrage movement and, uh, you know, how black men gained the right to vote before white women, you know. So, and that was just due to, you know, reconstruction and some other things that happened around that time. Right. But it's really interesting to see that people do not recognize the blood that you have on your hands because every privilege that a person not born and bred in America has, has been made possible by black people, right? So if black people mm -hmm. hadn't fought for the right to vote, we wouldn't be having these conversations. Mm -hmm. if black people had not died, you know, in the Civil War, we wouldn't, wouldn't have the United right. States. All of these things are really locked deeply into the core of what black people have contributed to America. 
And yet still, we are still the underdog. We, you know, like if you look at, you know, when you hire a president or hire a CIO or whatever it is you're hiring, it's less likely to hire someone of color than it is to hire what you know. Right. So that theory of superiority means that I must have someone like this in charge of the organization in order for it to be successful. And I think that is a flawed construct. And, you know, if, if, if any group is thinking about this, one of the things you can look at is, you know, really do you focus on diverse hiring, diversity of thought, diversity of action? You know, not just, you know, we want to bring in a black person here so we can say we met, we checked that box or a brown yeah. we No, but are we really thinking about this in clear, um, logical ways that result in real change? Yeah, no, so we've been uh, talking lately. We just had a meeting of all our department heads. One of our guiding principles in our strategic plan in the libraries is diversity strengthens us. And so we, we had a meeting yesterday of our uh, supervisors and talked about what that means to us now and what it meant to us five years ago when we put that strategic plan together. And, you know, what it means now is that we're much more conscious about diversifying our recruitment pools. Of course, you know, we don't always know that we're getting all the candidates through central HR at Duke, which is an issue. Um, and, you know, to be much more open to um, maybe, you know, candidates with, who come from a little bit of a different background, who might bring something, to see that as a plus, not as, oh, I don't know what that means. And uh, I think that's one of the big, you know, in my, in my reflections, I, I keep coming back to the fact that people fear the unknown or people fear what, they, what is not familiar and what is not. And that to me is a lot of the root of the, the um, white supremacist activity in the country now. It's we you know, it's if we... If we give them something, we lose something. And, and that is a basic misconception. Um, in making the tent larger, bringing more people in, enriches everyone. And, you know, you just wish you could get that point across more than, you know, one person at a time. And people are pretty set in their ways. But anyway, I think the, you know, the focus on diversifying, having a, a very explicit focus on diversifying our, uh, our staff and, uh, you know, is, is really important right now. One thing I've become aware of, this is kind of a little thing, but um, is ads since George Floyd's killing. Have you noticed like on TV now there are black people in ads, there didn't yeah, used to be. And in you know, even in Garden and Gun and, you know, Our State Magazine and places where it was like all white, it's now, you know, people are, you know, maybe just advertising people are saying, oh, we have to do this. But I would like to hope that people are saying, you know, we are all citizens of this state or we are all citizens of this country and we can learn from each other. I think that advertising seems a message you know, because a lot of times it leads black people astray because they mm -hmm. see a black face advertising this thing. Oh, that must mean it's in our best interest. And I don't think that's the case. Um, yeah. I, I know you have to go, but I, I want to just share one thing with you that I have told people over time. As, as a philosophy of what we are as a planet, as a, a global community, you know, if you look outside your door 
and I guess depending on where you live, because I don't think there are a lot of trees in Chicago, but, but if you look outside your door, there is not just a single tree. It's not a pine tree, an oak tree, a magnolia tree, whatever it is. The universe understood this, and we as people have not mastered this, that, that we need diversity. So there's no one kind of anything. You know, there are a gazillion different kinds of ants mm-hmm. and everything. And yet still we as people who are supposedly gifted and bright and, and, and forward thinkers have not mastered that skill, you know, and it's really uh, wonderful to hear people beginning to talk about it, but then do more than talk about it, bring about change yeah. in those areas yeah. you know, because the universe is giving you a perfect example of what yeah. diversity does. I love the tree analogy. That's great. I'm going to remember that. I live in Duke Forest and I'm looking out at the trees now and you're right. They're so many and they're codependent right absolutely Absolutely. i think that's that that has to be where we lead from you know is that place that the universe is diverse and so should we we should not be relying if you had if we only had pine trees just think about what that would look like (laughs) it's not a good idea but anyway thank you so much for chatting with me thanks rochelle i really enjoyed this i'm really i'm grateful for the invitation and the opportunity thank you so much i really appreciate you doing it and as soon as the video converts i'll send you a link and you can okay let me know whether I can upload it. Okay. Take Thank care. So okay. Well. Have a good weekend. Bye.